started. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we look at John chapter 4 and the story of the Samaritan woman, we pray that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures um, and that we would have an excitement over the Lord Jesus just as she did. Uh, Let us respond to this text with faith the same way that her town responded to the Lord Jesus with faith. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so John 3, who did Jesus talk to? John 3. Last, last lesson that we had. Who did Jesus talk to? Nicodemus. All right. What was Nicodemus's job title? He was a Pharisee, but like what was uh, even, even bigger about that? He got confused. Can, a, can a, uh, a person enter the mother's womb the second time? And Jesus said, you are the something of Israel and you don't know these things? the teacher of Israel, all right? So not only is he a Pharisee, but he's like a high-ranking Pharisee, teacher of Israel. Um, Who would you expect to respond correctly to Jesus if anyone was going to respect right? You would expect it to be Nicodemus. Religious leader, knows the Old Testament, knows the promises of the Messiah, not only a Pharisee, but a teacher of Israel. He's the guy that whenever Jesus shows up on the scene, he should say, there he is. And did Nicodemus get it right? No. He goes to Jesus during what time? Night. Night. And Jesus says, here's the testimony. The light's shined into the world, but the people have loved the darkness more than they have loved the light because their works are evil. John 4, we are going to get a contrast to Nicodemus. And it's going to be the Samaritan woman. Uh, Samaritans are viewed how by Israelites? Very poorly. Um, Israelites would oftentimes call them half-breeds. Because they were half-Jewish, half-Gentile. And they looked on them as lower than the Gentiles. Very, very negative view of the Samaritans. What we're going to see is that that's not the view that Jesus has of the Samaritans. Um, and we're going to see that this, this woman is, is a complete 180 from Nicodemus. So uh, starting in John 4, it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So the Pharisees have realized Jesus is making big splashes. Pharisees are maybe not big fans of him. So to avoid contention, it's not quite his time to to be arrested and crucified. He leaves Judea. He goes back north to his home region of Galilee. And to get there, he had to pass through Samaria. Um, map of Israel, Mediterranean on this side, uh, Jordan River, Sea of Galilee, empties into the Dead Sea, Judea is here, Galilee is here, where is Samaria? Over in Galilee. Yeah, it would be in between. Um, if most people who were Jewish were traveling from Judea to Galilee, how would they make that journey? They would go around Samaria. Um, Jesus decides to make that journey by doing what? Going straight through. 
Um, it says in the text that to get there, he had to go through Samaria. Could he have gone that way? He could have. Why does it say he had to go through Samaria? What do you think? He could have made like any other Jewish person and gone around Samaria, but the text says he had to go through Samaria. Why do you think it says that? Because he had to talk to Samaria. Yeah. Technically Jews. Yeah. Technically, these people are Jewish, and Jesus has been sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Uh, but I, I think that, that that is a really good point. Jesus knows that there is an appointment waiting him there. Maybe the Father has prompted him to do this. Maybe the Spirit has prompted him to do this. But he knows that there is some sort of work that needs to be done in Samaria. So he travels through this region that most Jews would do whatever it took to avoid. In verse 5, it says that he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. The place where Jesus, the setting of this story, the place where Jesus is at, the name of the city is uh, Sychar. In the Old Testament, it had a different name. In the Old Testament, it was called Shechem. Oh, there shouldn't be a C there. Shechem. What do you guys remember about Shechem? Is that usually a good town or a bad town? Anybody remember a story that happened in Shechem? No, but that's close. It's close. The first story that happens in Shechem is um, Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, was called by God to go back and live in his father's land. Uh, Jacob was scared to do that, though. Anybody remember why he was scared to do that? He has a twin brother. What's Jacob's brother's name? Esau. Esau. And how do they how do they get along? They didn't. They don't, right? Uh, Jacob is very scared of, of, of Esau, so God has said, go back and dwell with Esau. And he says, I don't know about that. So he goes and lives in a place called Shechem instead. Jacob has a daughter that's very curious about the people of the land. And so she goes out to see the women of Shechem. And as she's out in a field, the prince of Shechem, whose name is Shechem, that's who the city's named after, uh, grabs her and abuses her. Her name's Dinah. And then goes back to her father and says, I'd like to take her for a wife. You guys remember that? The defiling of Dinah? So this is a city that right off the bat in scripture is associated with sexual abuse. Uh, how did Dinah's brothers respond to that situation? You remember what, what they do? What do they do, Isaac? They, uh, well, firstly what they do is they weaken the city by making all of the men uh, circumcise themselves. Then they went and murdered everyone. Yeah, two of the brothers do that, Simeon and Reuben. Uh, respond whenever Shechem is like, hey, I want to marry Dinah now. Um, they're very upset about this. They've sexually abused, uh, he sexually abused our, our sister. It doesn't seem right that now he's strutting in and is like, make her live with me for the rest of her life. So they say, they, they deceive. It's a city of deception. And 
they say, uh, if all the men of your city circumcise themselves, then we'll intermarry with you guys. So the people circumcise themselves. Uh, that is a very painful process. And so two of the brothers, Simeon and Levi, then walk into the city as all of them are weakened. They take swords and they slaughter the entire city. Good thing or bad thing? Uh, it's a place where religion is improperly used. Uh, and it is a place of violence. Uh, Simeon and Levi do not receive the blessing and birthright because of this instance. What they did was wrong. Um, later on, Shechem becomes a city associated with rebellion. It is the place, um, you guys remember Gideon in the book of Judges? Uh, after Gideon judges Israel, the people of Israel come to him and say, become our king. And Gideon says, no, no, no. The only king you should ever have is God. And then the very next thing the text tells us Gideon does is he names his son Abimelech, meaning my father is the king. Well, Gideon dies and Abimelech says, well, my father was the king and my father's gone. So now I'm the king. I should be the king. And he rebels against the Lord at Shechem and sets himself up as a king um, and eventually will die there. Shechem is also the place where the kingdom split happens between Rehoboam and his rival, Jeroboam. Jeroboam. So again, a place of rebellion where the tribes rebel against the Davidic king. And who appointed the Davidic king? God did. So whenever they rebel against the Davidic king, they're rebelling against the Lord himself. Uh, so all things considered, you're looking at this. Does Shechem seem like a place that is... Thing, good things or bad things typically happen there? Bad. Bad. One other important element to Shechem, though, is that in the book of Joshua, we learn that Shechem is appointed as a city of refuge. What is a city of refuge? No murder. Explain a little bit more. If you get accused of a crime, you can go there and nobody can hurt you. Until you... Perfectly guilty. Yeah, until you're proven guilty. A city of refuge, if you... Uh, specifically for murder manslaughter laws. So uh, if I accidentally or purposefully kill a person, uh, the Avenger of Blood can come after me, and there's this really intense game of tag... That is played with an axe, right? And so to, uh, <laughs> you guys remember this, right? Yes. Like you guys remember the city of refuge, right? Um, I, 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 I kill somebody and one of their relatives, the Avenger of Blood, chases me and tries to kill me. I get to the city of refuge and that's my safe zone. And then I stay in trial there. And if I'm innocent, I stay in the city of refuge until the high priest dies. If I'm guilty, they hand me over to the Avenger of Blood and uh, choppy chop, right? <laughs> Um, this is a method to make sure that a person stands trial. Uh, what type of person would not want to stand trial? Someone who's guilty. So this really, um, you know, incentivizes you to go and stand trial. Shechem is one of the cities of refuge. So um, ideally, it's a place of justice. It's ideally a place of safety. It's a place of peace, ideally. Um, but is that, the, this is kind of the ideal of what Shechem would be. Is that what you see Shechem being throughout the scriptures? Nope. Well, here 
in this story, Jesus travels through Samaria and he comes to the city called Sychar, which is the same place as Shechem. And at Sychar or at Shechem, Jesus is going to interact with a woman. And we want to see what happens. One other thing to kind of put in the back of your mind as we're thinking about Shechem. Shechem is also a place during the 400 silent years where the Samaritans set up a temple. Um, They set up a temple there because were they allowed to go to the temple in Jerusalem and worship? No. No. Guess what the Jews did whenever the Samaritans set up a temple in Shechem? They burned it to the ground and, and slaughtered the people who were inside of it. So again, religious violence here. All right. So um, Jesus comes to Shechem, though. Let's see what happens. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which means that it's about noon. It's the hottest part of the day. Um, Would you typically go draw water from a well during the hottest part of the day? No. When would you usually, you think, get water from a well? Yeah, either morning or evening. That's when people would typically go. You typically don't go in the middle of the day right at noon. So Jesus is there. Uh, He's been journeying, though, so he's there at the well. Um, If somebody walks up to the well here in a second, um, right in the heat of the day, right in the middle of the day, why do you think they might do that? They're not going in the morning or evening. Why why might they be doing that? Either out of necessity or what was the second thing? Yeah, they don't want to be around people. You know, it's the reason that uh, I really like if we're driving to Florida or Illinois, I like going at 2 o'clock in the morning because there's not people on the road. I don't want to be around them, right? This, uh, this woman is going to show up in a moment, and, and she's going to show up at this well right in the middle of the day, the heat of the day, whenever you typically don't go. And the reason is she's avoiding people. She is a social outcast, and she doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want people to interact with her. She wants to be isolated. So, verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. What's weird about that? Yeah, if, uh, if you're a Jew and you share food or drink with a non-Jew, what do you become? Does Jesus care? No. He says, give me a drink. Verse 8, his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Most people that I have heard teach this story interpret that to mean that this woman is very promiscuous. I don't think that's the case. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that that's what Jesus is driving at here, is, is that this woman is sexually immoral. What I think he's driving at is, um, you might remember from the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus gave teachings about marriage and divorce. And he said, in previous times, Moses, because of the people's hardness of hearts, gave them certificates of divorce. Um, he's referring there to a story in Numbers where the people of Israel worshipped uh, Bel by marrying Moabite women. And the choice was either they stay in these relationships that are idolatrous or they commit another sin uh, by divorcing and putting these women away. And, and Moses looked at this and he had to choose the lesser of two evils. And he said, I'm going to give certificates of divorce and allow them to put these women away. Um, the Pharisees and, and the Jews and the Samaritans kind of took that and ran with it. And divorce was much more of a prominent thing in their cultures than it ever should have been biblically. I think what has happened in this story is that this woman is destitute. What does that mean? What does destitute mean? She's poor. Uh, she had a husband, and I think that the husband divorced her. And then she had a second husband that liked her for a little while. He divorced her. Third husband that liked her for a little while. Divorced her. Fourth husband who liked her for a little while. Divorced her. Fifth husband who liked her for a little while. Divorced her. And now she's on the sixth one. And what will the sixth one not do? He won't marry her. If he married her, he's financially obligated to take care of her. He would be economically tied to her. And he doesn't want to do that. He wants the, you know, maybe the, the pleasures of married life and not the responsibility. And so I think that what is being kind of driven at here is that this woman is somebody that people have taken advantage of. Whenever she's gone through these divorces, she has not been able to take property with her. It's remained with the husband. And so she is a poor person. She is a destitute person. She is a person that people look at and say, well, she's not really bringing anything into the marriage financially, so she's unmarriable. Uh, I think that she is looked down on in society because of that. I don't think that this is a reference to her being sexually immoral as much as it's a reference to her being someone who has been taken advantage of and someone who's really down on her luck. Um, Jesus mentions this um, conundrum that she's in. You've had five husbands and the one that you're now with is not your husband. And in verse 19, the woman wants to change the subject very quickly. She doesn't want to talk about this. She says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. 
So rather than talk about me, Jesus, let's talk about theology. Let's change the subject. Uh, you guys say that you should worship in Jerusalem. We used to worship here before you guys you know, destroyed our temple. Uh, which one is it? Jesus responds to her and says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Does Jesus that openly throughout the Gospels, does he typically that openly say, yeah, I'm the Christ? Yeah, not usually that openly throughout the Gospels does he say, yeah, I'm that guy. A lot of times whenever people say, are you the Christ, how does he respond to them? He has this little phrase. It is as you say it. Like, he said that during the trial whenever they yeah. accused him of, yeah, they, they say, are you the Christ? And he says, you said so. Um, Peter said, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of living God. The, the, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, that is true. Good job, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. A lot of times throughout the Gospels, though, people will say, uh, this has to be the Christ. Or this is the son of David, or something like that. And what will Jesus, how else will he sometimes respond? Sometimes he'll say, yes, you've said so. How else does he sometimes respond? What's that, what's that called? The Messianic secret. Messianic secret. <laughs> yes, but don't say anything to anyone about it. Here, Jesus just very openly tells her. She's like, oh, well, the Messiah is coming. He'll answer all my questions whenever he gets here. And he just looks at her and goes, I'm that guy. Very open about it. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. Does it say talking to a Samaritan woman? No. They marveled that he is talking to a woman. woman. Um, now, we need to understand that correctly. Um, does Jesus talk to women throughout his earthly ministry quite a bit? Yes, he does, right? So why are they so like, whoa, he's talking to a girl. What is motivating that? What's motivating that is where are they? More specific. At a well. Um, You guys who were in Old Testament last year, if you think back very, very hard, every time that there is a well story in the Old Testament, what story follows it? Um, you remember Abraham sends a servant to go find a wife for Rebecca, and the servant, or to find a, a wife for Isaac, and he finds Rebecca. Where does he meet Rebecca? At a well. At a well. And then what story follows that? He meets Rebecca at a well, and what story follows? Isaac and Rebecca get married. Married. All right. Uh, Jacob goes and works for Laban. Who does he meet as he's working for Laban? He falls in love with. Not Leah, but her sister, Rachel. Where does Jacob meet Rachel? At a well. All right. Moses runs away from Egypt after he 
murders the Egyptian, he goes to the land of Midian. And at the land of Midian, there are shepherds that are harassing his soon-to-be wife, Zipporah, at a well. He drives the shepherds off, comes back, opens the well up, and waters Zipporah's flocks. And then the next story is that he marries her. Wells are where you meet your spouse in the scriptures. <laughs> I'll come back to it in a second. Yeah. Wells are... Go ahead. What is, what's your question? Didn't Jeremiah get thrown into a well? What? <laughs> yeah, that's true. It was yeah. a dried up well, though. Oh, no water in it. So water wells are where you meet... Uh, that's where you meet a spouse. Um, so now... Now that you know that, come back to this story. Come back to the husband thing. Come back to this story. What's weird about the fact that Jesus is talking with a woman at this well? That everyone else is getting married. Everybody goes to a well and gets hitched. All right? Um, Now, we come back to this story, and there's a single woman, and Jesus... And this single woman, you know, I'm making the argument that uh, this whole thing is probably not her promiscuous. It's, it's probably, uh, you know, her being taken advantage of. But kind of put that aside for a second. It is at least someone that this society kind of looks at as sketchy. She's a social outcast because of all this. And Jesus is talking to her by himself at a well. So the disciples come back. And what is the first thought that goes through their mind? What is he doing? Right? Does Jesus get married? No, he doesn't. All right. So they are kind of beside themselves that this is happening. Very, very odd. And so um, uh, it says that whenever they came back, they marveled. He was talking with a woman, but no one said, what are you doing? Or why are you talking with her? Verse 28 so the woman has heard Jesus talk about this living water. That she's heard him say, I am the Messiah. So verse 28, it says, she leaves her water jar. She's in a hurry. She leaves her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, teacher, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the disciples take that literally. They say uh, to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Uh, For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Basically what he's saying there is... um, these, um, this woman has gone back, and what is she doing in the town? Telling, everybody Telling everyone about Jesus. And what are all the people getting ready to do? Come to him. Yeah, come and meet him, right? And so um, what Jesus is basically saying there is he's saying, um, right now is a time for harvesting. It's a time for reaping. 
And even right now, this woman has gone back and she is reaping. She's telling people the Messiah is here and they're responding in faith. She's making converts. Other people have sowed. The Samaritans know the word of God. They know the promises about the Messiah. And even now, this woman has gone and she is telling them the Messiah is here. These people are believing and are, and are converting. And she's receiving the wages for that. Her, she's building up her reward that one day she'll have in heaven. And he's then looking at the apostles and saying, and by the way, you're supposed to be doing the same thing. Who is the example for the apostles in this story? That woman. Other people have prepared the way. Other people have taught the Old Testament, taught the promises of the Messiah. And the apostles are now supposed to go and say, it's been fulfilled. The Christ is here. This woman's ministry is an example to be set for the disciples. The same way that she's going and making converts, they are supposed to be going and preaching and making converts. Uh, So really quickly, um, John 3, Nicodemus, teacher of Israel, does he get it? Should he have? Should. Yeah. John 4, Samaritan woman, social outcast, potentially questionable morals, depending on how we read it. And she's the one that gets it. You see how John puts these stories side by side, and it kind of puts Nicodemus to shame? And the Samaritan that the Jews look down on is kind of showing up the teacher of Israel. It's subversive. It's not what you would expect. Uh, In verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. Uh, She said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Uh, And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of Israel. The world. No, the Savior of the world. Not only of Israel, but of the world. And then he'll leave after the two days and will go to Galilee. And guess what's going to happen in Galilee? Are the people going to accept him there? We've read about it three times in the Gospels already. What happens in Galilee? A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. So the people of Samaria will accept him, but the ruler of Israel, the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, at first doesn't. The Samaritan woman's faith puts Nicodemus to shame. The people of Samaritan receive him. But the people of Galilee don't. The people in the region of Samaria to, in, uh, in the region of Samaria put the people in the region of Galilee to shame. Um, let's go back for a second and talk about how the setting of this story uh, kind of looks like a marriage story. We've seen several examples in the Old Testament now of how people meet spouses at wells. Does this woman marry Jesus? Uh, somebody open to Ephesians 5. Uh, Ephesians 5, 25 through... 32, 25 through 32 of that chapter. You got it, Gray? Okay. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church that he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves, loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. But we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the mystery of marriage is ultimately about what? This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to in the verse that Gray just read. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to what? Christ and the church. Christ and the church. Marriage is ultimately something that points past itself to the union that the church has with Christ. So, were the Samaritan woman and Jesus Technically, physically, you know, man and wife in this text. No. But what did the Samaritan woman have in this text that Nicodemus and the people of Galilee did not have? She had faith. And by faith, she entered into Christ's church. And by faith, she had spiritual union and oneness with Christ. And by faith, she found Jesus to be a bridegroom, unlike the other bridegrooms that she had had. Not one that leaves her destitute and in poverty and, and as a social outcast, but one who loved himself enough to give himself up for her. So, even though this is not a story about human marriage, We know that Christ never married during his earthly ministry. It is one that's supposed to point us past that to the spiritual reality behind marriage. In this text, the Samaritan woman believed. She's someone who will be in heaven one day. She is a person uh, who joins Christ's church and becomes part of the bride of Christ, as do all of the Samaritans who come to him and believe. So, many things that we can see in this text. Number one, we can see that uh, this is hinting at the uh, marriage analogy between Christ and his people that we'll see spelled out later in Scripture. Uh, We see that uh, the Samaritans are putting the people of Judea and Galilee to shame in this text. And we also see that Shechem is becoming transformed. Whenever Jesus shows up at Shechem... Uh, it becomes a, uh, the, the ideal place that it was supposed to be. It's a, it's a place where these people do find refuge in the blood of Christ. It's a place where they find right relationship. It's a, it's a place where they find salvation, just like Shechem as a city of refuge used to be. You know, I, I imagine that the people who first read John, as they are going through the early parts of this story, these tells of Shechem from the Old Testament are in their minds. Oh no, we have uh, this woman who uh, has really been mistreated showing up at the well. Uh, You know, this is a place where religion has been improperly used to bring death upon people, you know, with 
uh, Simeon and Levi and, and with the Samaritan temple. It's a place where God's law and God's leaders have been rejected historically. But when Christ comes to Shechem, the city is transformed. It becomes a place that submits to God and to his Christ. It becomes a place of justice. It becomes a place of safety and refuge and life and salvation. Uh, There's a great reversal that's happening in this text as Jesus goes into Shechem. Uh, This week, your memory verse is John 3.36, due on Friday. I want you to do the reading by the time you come to class on Thursday. Uh, We'll have another quiz over it. Remember that on any of your quizzes, you can use notes, uh, test. We don't use uh, notes on test. Um, Your test, uh, your next test over John's gospel um, is still a little ways out. It won't be this week. I I think it's next week um, whenever we finish our lectures through John chapter 10. We've got about five minutes left, so you can